Hey there, Michael Mahaney from the Pot of the Podcast. I've got a question for you. Do you identify as a dancer? If so, I have a group for you to check out. Dance Artists National Collective is the place for you. DANC, or DANC, is a growing group of freelance dance artists organizing in solidarity to create safe, equitable, and sustainable working conditions for dancers. DANC holds weekly community response meetings every Monday on Zoom, and they host tons of focus groups for all of the important issues facing dancers, such as wages, benefits, working conditions, equity, and negotiating. They even host watch parties and other fun events to help you connect more with your dance community. Head over to their website, danceartistsnationalcollective.org. That's danceartistsnationalcollective.org to learn more about Dank and to sign their solidarity statement. And for all the latest updates, follow Dank on Instagram at Dance Artists National Collective. Hey, what's up? Hello, and welcome back to the Pot of Dev podcast. I'm Antoine Byers, and you've made it back to the lab, which stands for listening, learning, and building, where we create a space to share Black stories in the dance world, dissect how white supremacy shows up in our dance spaces, and dream of ways in which we can move forward to a dance world that is safe for all of us to access, participate in, and thrive. Last week, we spoke with two college seniors, Renaco Campbell and Ricardo Hartley, and recent grad Morgan Burns about their experiences navigating the world of dance education as Black students. Now, I wanted to continue our conversation a bit today because I feel like if we're going to talk about what it's like to be a Black person in this dance education world, it's important for us to look at the whole picture. I'm excited to have three incredible guests with us today. Each of them inspire me in their own unique way. What our guests do have in common is that they're all Black, of course. <laughs> they all have their MFAs or Masters of Fine Arts, and they are all teachers or educators in the dance world in some way, shape, or form. Today, we have Michelle Gibson, who is a cultural ambassador, choreographer, educator, and performing artist, as well as a faculty member at the great Booker T. Washington High School for the Performing and Visual Arts, which is my alma mater. So, you know, I got to shout out and give some love there. <laughs> we also have Ayun Harrison, who is a choreographer, educator, and the founder and creative director of Ballet Ashani. So we're really excited to have him with us. And we lastly, but certainly not least, have Sydney Mosley, who is a performer, choreographer, artist, activist, educator, and the artistic director of Sydney L. Mosley Dances, or SLM Dances. So I purposely left out a lot because I like to leave space for you all to introduce yourselves in the ways in which you'd like to be introduced. So we'll go around and give our listeners a quick intro sharing whatever you like, such as your pronouns or native land acknowledgements. And you can also just let us know how you're doing today. So we'll start with Michelle. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> hello, hello, hello. How are you? Good. Super excited to have you on today. All the I'm, way from I, Yes, Dallas by way of New Orleans. You know, I have to tag that on. Please do. Absolutely. <laughs> so my name is Michelle Gibson, and I'm the daughter of the late Reverend B.A. Gibson and Carolyn Gibson. I'm a mother. I'm an artist. I'm a woman. I'm a sister. I'm a friend. 
And those things are, are important to me. And those are the things that as an artist, I have to remind myself that I'm not just an artist. I am a plethora of things because of what life brings. And so for everything that I have to be for everybody, I have to be resilient. So give thanks for who you are and why you are. Beautiful. Thank you for all of that. And thank you for starting us energetically with that introduction. Very beautiful. Thank you so much. Ayun, how you doing? <laughs> so my name is Ayun Ashani Harrison. I'm a, I'm a Jamaican national and I moved to the U.S. for college. I did my undergrad at Juilliard and then I danced for several years in New York, um, danced Started my career with Ailey Two and danced with Dance Theater of Harlem while Mr. Mitchell was alive. And when then with Bella Hispanico, I went to grad school at Hollins University with Michelle. And um, ever since I've been teaching in several universities in different regions of the, the country. And a part of that, I started doing like this research and self-producing my own choreography. So I have a company that was initially called Mashani Dances, but I changed the name to Ballet Ashani to make it more clear what I'm doing um, from a marketing perspective. I think that right now I'm really navigating change. Like the last few months have been kind of come to Jesus moment for me to kind of figure out how it is that I'm going to survive in this field as an artist where like our bodies are just not like valued and we're not seen. Like, you know, when they're thinking about what industries to maintain, like we are not a part of that conversation and dance becomes this othered space, even in academia. So I'm really trying to be strategic about how I commit to what I do, but also figure out what that next step is. So that feels like really pertinent for like who I'm identifying for as right now. Beautiful. Thank you, Ayun. I definitely feel you on so many levels with all of that. Last but certainly not least, we have Sydney. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I am good. Super excited to have you on today with us. Thank you. So yes, my name is Sydney Mosley. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I'm on Lenape land um, in Harlem, New York City. And, you know, I think, Michelle, uh, the way you introduced yourself feels really resonant with me as well. So, you know, I am a daughter. I am a sister. I'm a friend. I'm an auntie. I am a leader. I am someone who brings people together in, you know, a myriad of different ways, primarily through dance and through movement. And today I am feeling really good. Um, it is a new season. It is, I'm really feeling new energy. And even though kind of the fall back to school, back to work vibe is very different <laughs> than it has been in all of our lives. Um, I am feeling, I'm still feeling it in a, in a really positive way. And so I'm just grateful, quite frankly, to be in my body in the way that I am today and to be here with you all in conversation. Beautiful, Sydney. Thank you so much. All right. Y'all ready to hop in with the questions? Okay. Cool. So first question, in 2015, the National Center for Education Statistics concluded that out of all the master's degrees received in the United States, 14% of the recipients were Black. The Journal of Blacks in High Education concluded this year that for doctorate's degrees, only 1.2% of all the doctorates awarded were Black. 
You all have received your master's degrees and Ayun, you're even pursuing your doctorate right now. So I'd love to hear from, yes, shout out Ayun. Um, and we'll talk a little bit later about how we can support him in that. But I'd love to hear from all of you. Did you grow up with Black figures furthering their education in the same way as you did? Why did you particularly feel that it was important for you to pursue higher education, especially and specifically in dance? Yes, Michelle. Well, being from New Orleans, it's an experience, right? It's, it's, it's an experience. Where you go to church was an experience. Where you went to school was an experience. What second lines you went to was ex- like everything was. But as far as our education, that was like, it was, it was everything for me. I loved elementary school. And one of the reasons why I loved it is because of the teachers I had that were all Black women. All of them were different to me. At six and seven and eight, they were smart. They, they still, one of the teachers, she wore pantyhose every day, right? And pleated skirts. And she had her white um, top with the, like, the little prints and the, and the vest. And her hair was silver. And she wore it in a bun, but it wasn't like the classical slick bun. Her hair kind of just was, that's the teachers I had, right? The second teacher that I turned out to be, Miss Betty Stewart, she was fly. Yes. She wore her hair. She wore her jumpers every day and her sandals with the sequin. <laughs> she was articulate. And she demanded that we gave her the respect and that we were present at six and seven and eight. She taught me how to be present as a student. Focused. So it was those type of educators that, like, to this day, when you think about and you look at your teaching practice, everything that you do pretty much is influenced by, right? We always want to take this, not we always, but people, a lot of people want to take the credit that their creativity comes solely from them. But we're all influenced. And so it was those two teachers that made me realize the power of Black women in education and it made me want to be that, be them. It's just that simple in the classroom. That's beautiful. And I love what you said about growing up with Black teachers. And, you know, that's a privilege, definitely, in my opinion, because speaking, we had a conversation with our guests last week, and a lot of them didn't see their black, first Black teacher, first Black choreographer, first Black person on stage anything like that until later in their training, even as late as their final year in college. So I just wanted to point that out, that that was truly a blessing. That's obviously showed up a lot in the way you carry yourself and the way that you teach and give to the next generation. So Sydney, did you have a similar experience or would you like to share? Yeah, I actually did have a similar experience. I'm originally from Baltimore, Maryland, and my elementary school was a small black private school that was attached to our church. And uh, when I say small, I mean small. My eighth, I mean, not my eighth, my fifth grade class had eight people in it, four girls and four boys. And it was a very similar experience of, you know, teachers who were teaching because it was their calling, them really instilling in us a love for learning. And it was a space that cultivated not only 
you know, this, this curiosity, this, you know, intellectual curiosity, as they say, but it was also a place where we learned who we were and whose we were. And, you know, I was dancing. It was through my school programs that I choreographed my first dance when I was seven, you know, in the church sanctuary to a Langston Hughes poem, wearing Kente cloth and a leotard, you know. <laughs> so that very much set a foundation for me. And, you know, when I think about pursuit of higher education in my family, you know, my dad on his side was a first-generation college grad, and he always talks about, like, he just kind of made it through by the skin of his teeth because all his parents knew was that he was going to college. So it was never a question for me about whether or not I was going to go, and it was more about how are we going to get you there and what you're going to do after that. And so that really sticks out for me, the fact that the path that I've taken has actually been a really long one. When I was a kid and people said, what you want to be when you grow up? I said, a dancer and a teacher. I'm a dancer and a teacher, you know? So I think that that's a really interesting thing of like just having that instilled at a young age and then spending a lifetime manifesting that. Beautiful, beautiful. And Ayun, did you have some of those same figures coming up as well? So, Anton, you know, it's, it's important, even though the U.S. is my adoptive home and I've been here for the last 26 years, I'm Jamaican, right? So, as you've heard, this probably stories of a lot of immigrants like me coming from a Black country is I grew up with uh, strong, powerful images of Blackness and, and particularly anti-colonialist ideologies of Blackness, right? So, my doctors, my dentists, my teachers, my prime minister, all these people were, were Black. Folks. So that's in that sense of my heritage and my family in, in their own schooling and their own careers are professionals in that in, in, in a traditional way, right? When we're talking about academics. But I, I, I learned a new experience here in the States. I, I never had to identify with my blackness, right? I could always identify with other things, other parts of me in the Caribbean. So for me, the minute I got to the States, being at, at Juilliard with people like Asha Thomas and Glenn Sims, Amy Hall, Jean Lambert. Like there was just a group of really, William Isaac. Like there were a group of really excellent black dancers from the U.S. who came in, came in, in my group. And I have to say, I started to see, feel that sense of like, what do I represent other than my family line, right? Being in Italy too, being in Dancing of Harlem with Mr. Mitchell as an artistic director. But the pl- place it started to really shift for me was in grad school, you know, my cohort had some powerful Black women in that group. And I have to say they held us down because there were, there were a couple Black men there and we were trying to find our footing. That's why we were in school, but the, our Black women held us down in that space, right? Because that was a white space. And even though it was trying to be progressive, it was, there were some things going on, you know? So that was the beginning of my journey of asking questions about my own heritage, you know, and how colonialization plays out in my performance of self, right? But when I was working at Goucher College is when it really hit me. I was working with excellent Black professors. And for me, that question became like, am I going to stop here? Right? What does it mean to have a Black professor who can teach across the board? Right? That's, that we can move through different spaces in, in, in the school. How many students can we reach? You know, and those folks at Goucher College of Black professors, those PhDs, those brilliant people who were very patient and really helped me find resources are really 
guided how I made the next couple of steps in my career and how I'm imagining myself for the future in terms of my education. Beautiful, beautiful. And this is great because it actually takes me into my next question. But before we move on, I want to say shout out to Black women. Okay, because I think that's beautiful what you said, always at the forefronts, always at the front lines, taking the hits for everybody. So I wanted to make sure we gave gratitude in that way. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, and Ayun, you kind of talked about it just a second ago, we hear a lot of stories about how white supremacy shows up in our dance spaces at the studio level, K through 12, and even at the undergraduate level, at least in the conversations I'm having. But it wasn't until a few months ago when I was attending the Dance Union podcast town hall on dismantling white supremacy within dance institutions. Shout out Jay and Melanie. It wasn't until then that I thought about all the ways in which it can show up in master's and doctorate's programs. I hadn't even thought about it, honestly. So I'd love to hear about what are some challenges that you've personally faced as a Black artist and as a Black student attempting to further your education at that next level. Anybody can hop in whenever. I don't want to put anybody on the spot. (laughs) I mean, I feel like, honestly, we need a bottle of wine or, you know, (laughs) some shots of tequila for that one. I mean... Because, and I, so I'll say this about my experience, especially doing my graduate school work, was that was actually the first time where I experienced really overt racism in an educational experience. And I was very young. I got my MFA immediately out of undergrad. I was very young. There were undergrads in my program who were older than me. And so I actually didn't even have the language to name it. But that was what was happening. You know, my cohort, I was the only Black woman. There were very few Black people in the department as a whole, no Black faculty. And, you know, I don't, you know, have the quote unquote dancer's body. I don't, I came in very clear about what I was there to do. And the level of mentorship that I really deserved to have was not there for me. And I really, I'll say this, that If I had not been already, I did my undergraduate work at Barnard College. And so if I had not already been dancing in New York before I went to grad school, it would have broken me, quite frankly. Just, you know, I was out of my depth in terms of relationships with faculty and really in terms of trying to really hone my craft and not getting the support I needed and really just kind of left out. It was like, you know, what you all got here me got me here for if you're not going to teach me kind of a thing. And so that for me was a really traumatic experience, quite frankly. And I think that, you know, over the years, I've talked to a lot of Black folks in pursuing their graduate work and this kind of a trend, you know, that, that it can be very traumatic. Wow, that's so crazy. The, the idea of mentorship and support within the program is something that we heard a lot about last week at the undergraduate, those levels. And it, it's crazy that that's still something that you're experiencing the graduate level. I'm shaking a little bit if you're listening in today with all the stuff you shared. Did anybody resonate or connect with Sydney's experience? Well, grad school changed my life, y'all. I mean, not by words, but by emotions, identification, placement. 2005. Hurricane Katrina. That's why I left home. And um, for for some years, I uh, artistically, I had nothing to say because I was still trying to deal with being dislocated and being defined a refugee. 
So Donna Faye Birchfield, I don't know if you, you have to know Miss Donna Faye. She is a different type of human. And she has, she's insightful. And she's a white woman. And it's something about Dee Faye that, you know, she has this thing when it comes to the works of Black women and allowing us, giving us a space, right? Something about that. Now, now mind you, I, I say what I say. She's a white woman, right? I'm a Black woman at the time being shifted, lost everything. So I have this conversation and it was like, you should apply for grad school. And I was like, for what? I'm a mother of two children right now, miss. Tell me what grad school going to do for me, right? Straight, just, just real talk, right? Let's just talk, right? So I applied the first time and I was denied, right? <laughs> you didn't have to tell me because I asked you in the beginning, what was this going to do for me? Understanding where I was in my life, right? So then apply again. Cool. Apply, got in. Did not have a clue about what I was entering. The people that were in my cohort, I that shifted my perspective about what dance was. Ooh, because I thought I knew. Then this man entered the classroom one day and everybody had been talking about, nah, I just heard his name, right? You know, you hear people name, you know how we throw names out. Come on, yo. They was talking about Thomas DeFrance, Mr. T. I was like, who is this? Who is Thomas DeFrance? DeFrance? Is he French? I was like, well, what did he do? Right? I didn't know this man. So I think we were all walking into the classroom. So standing at the little podium, this little, this little man, you know, and he had his little locks, you know, light complected, you know, and I was like, is, is this Dr. DeFrance? Is this him? I was like, oh, okay. So I sat there and he opened his mouth. And the first sentence that came out of his mouth was words that reminded me that I was supposed to be where I was supposed to be. I was in a class with my classmates. My classmates were people that I had seen perform, perform in companies. I had seen these bodies on stage and admired them all of my life. This little girl from New Orleans, 504. I'm sitting around people I've admired changed my life. And that grad school was like, this is where you're supposed to be. Now, I was intimidated. In the beginning, I'm not going to lie, right? Because people came in with some language that I wasn't sure about. The language made me comfortable. So, you know, I had my little, my little thesaurus. So every time somebody said word, I, you know, I was, you know, first year, second year, I realized, okay, well, there's some things that I need to learn because I'm here to learn, right? Took that information. Listened to my peers talk about their perspectives on choreography and things like defining youth, dance becoming a, an activism. I was like, who, what is that? What is, how is this dance? Because I didn't know any of this. Third year, I gotten the information, started to utilize it in spring semester the best that I could, even being a high school teacher, still trying to use this information and, and work it out on high school minds and bodies. And then it got to the moment when we had to write our thesis. And I realized that I think I was the only one, Ayun, that did a piece that was 
culturally driven as far as people in the streets. And we, I don't know if I, you, you remember or not, but when we had to give feedback on each other's choreography as we were choreographing, we, they set us in circles. And so we had to give feedback. And this was the moment when I realized that I needed to look at the cultural symbolism of who I am. If it was modern context, if it was contemporary modern, they knew how to language that. If it was classical ballet, they knew how to give feedback where it was really detailed. It wasn't just like, oh, the movement is strong. You know, it's powerful. And so it got to my piece. And I don't think I ever told anybody this. So I showed my excerpt of my work that Baba Chuck Davis, the late Baba Chuck Davis, rest in peace, mm-hmm. A-A-D-E, performed my piece, Dream Come True. So it was time for people to give me feedback. Dead silence. <laughs> but I thought the piece was so strong. It was very energetic. I realized that even some of my brothers and sisters, they couldn't language it. Mm-hmm. They couldn't give me the feedback that I needed on a work that was about us, Black folks. That right there was the turning point for me, where I felt that a need to present works about my home that is important to American history, the music, the language, the dance, the food. And so that is why I decided to look at second line culture, Congo Square, right? The roots of that and create a practice around it because it's important. How do we language culture? Why can't we language culture? Especially if you're Black. And Black means international and Black means U.S. That was, that was a turning point for me. Wow. Very, thank you for sharing that and, you know, sharing that with us and our listeners. Very well, grateful me, for you. Let me make sure, let me make sure I say Ayun, Ayun did have my back, right? I ain't gonna lie. You know, you know, yes. you know it was only one, two, how, it was how many of us? Four. Four of us? Among, okay. You know, so we would, we, would, we would still have conversations, right? But I'm talking about as a collective. But mm-hmm. my, I'd have to give him some props. Yes. Shout out Ayun. We got to have our Black women's back, right? Okay. So shout out to that. Wow. That, I, I really... That story is really what brought up the question I heard from another dancer who danced with a Black company for many years, not trying to tell all of their business, but they danced with a Black company for many years, and then they went and got to a master's program and had a similar experience. They brought what they'd been doing their whole life, right? Their white counterparts who had done ballet and contemporary and all of this their whole life, they got to bring that. But when the Black artist brought her art and what she had been doing, she was told that there was really no space for that in her program. So that, thank you for sharing that story. And I kind of want to come back to Second Line a little bit in the original Buckshot. We'll come back to that a little bit later because I would love to talk about that. But Ayun, I'd love to, yes, Ayun, please. What what I was going to say is, so I, and I need to call these things out, right? So a part of my success in my career and academia is I was a, I was a novelty at a particular point in time. Right in the mid-90s, you weren't having like a lot of black guys who like taking ballet, right? And me coming from Jamaica, having studied Royal Academy of Dancing syllabus and trained in Cuba and all the kind of training I had, it made me come to my Juilliard audition. And even if I didn't have a good audition, they could look at my body and see my school. 
And I've benefited from that ability to perform Europeanness in such a modified way that allows white people to be comfortable with me, right? So what grad school did for me was something different. It was my colleagues and two particular professors, Jeffrey Bullock and Tommy DeFrance, who started to plant the seed of you need to question your lineage in dance and, 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 one, and ask the question of why you are where you are and what do you have access to and why you had access to it. And I'm lucky to also come from a family where we had access financially, right? So, so I have benefited from that, but I have to say for me, it, it, there's a way that we're infantilized in academic settings, Black people are. The higher up you go, it's almost the more it happens. There, you're treated uh, like a child, like you've been given access to this thing, this idea of like, we're diversifying the pool and that's why you're here. And you didn't really earn your place, right? So for example, the track that Michelle and I were put in was the third of, uh, they had to create a new track to fit some of us in because they could not imagine us in the other two tracks. Right. Right. So here's the thing. I came into that institution at grad school having danced with three major black companies and attended the Juilliard School. None of that mattered. None of that mattered because the people who were coming from a certain kind of dance form, mostly the postmodernist dance forms, are the ones who were being celebrated in that space. So for me, the presence of Tommy and Jeffrey were, they created a space for me to feel like I can do this, I can make this through because the representation of these black men suggested that I could also be present in that space. And that was, that was significant for me. But there's a way that you always are gonna feel that imposter syndrome in, in, in these academic spaces because the way you talk, the, your experiences, all of the things that are the composite of what you are, are, are othered. Even when they try to, to, to decentralize whiteness in the, in the education, the conversation still comes back to certain kinds of dance and certain kinds of people and, and a dismissal of anything that is Black that looks traditional. So I think that the suffering for me came from having to say to myself every day, you belong, you deserve to be here, you're paying your money, and you have to insist on the experience that you want to have. I'm just over here having an amen corner to what both of y'all are saying. <laughs> and that last comment, you know, it really, it really resonates with me. I remember actually sitting in an office. The, the thing, one of the issues during my graduate experience was I was never getting cast to perform. However, performance credits were required for my degree. And I, and I had to go into the office and say, listen, what are we going to do about this? And they were like, oh, well, you can, you can just make a self-choreographed solo. Excuse me, that is two different situations. That is a self-choreographed solo is a, is a project in choreography, not a project in performance. And I'm very clear that, you know, again, had I not been so self-assured walking in the door and been able to advocate for myself in that way, uh, you know, I don't know what would have happened, quite frankly. I don't know if I actually would have made it through that experience. That's so real. And it brings me kind of to my next question, Sydney. I want to reference your wonderful Essence article that came out this summer. 
Um, and it's titled How to Be a Black Choreographer and Not Die. So give that a quick Google search if you have not read it. But you said that your privileges, your education and your ability to code switch, your non-disabled and cisgendered body and heterosexuality allowed you to believe the American bootstraps hype. And with everything that all of you are saying, this parallels directly with dance. We talk about code switching with our words and with our language, but I'd love to take a second to expand this conversation we're already talking about. Ayun, you kind of brought it up, but the ability to code switch physically as a dancer. Did you feel the need to do that within your programs? How did you navigate it? How did you make it through for the listeners who might be having a similar experience to what you described? Me specifically? Anyone can answer, sorry. <laughs> I mean, I can just say that for me, the, the code switching was just about how to navigate white spaces. I grew up in a very Black <laughs> background, home life, et cetera, et cetera. And then starting in middle school, I went to predominantly white schools. And so I learned at a very young age how to do that code switching. I also was, you know, often tokenized in most spaces that I was in. But what's interesting is that, you know, throughout my K through 12 education, I was dancing at school, but my primary dance life was outside of school and that was in a Black community. And so I think that's part of what put me in a place that by the time I'm getting, you know, my MFA, I feel confident enough to say, no, I know I can dance. You can put me in a dance, (laughs) you know, as opposed to not, understanding that about myself, even though I'm not fitting, you know, whatever the Eurocentric ideals are in terms of my body and the way that I move. Thank you, Sydney. Does anyone have anything to add to that? I think for me, in performing arts high school, I learned what it was, right? And then I figured out when I had to pull it out of my purse and then when I had to put it back into my like when it was needed and when it wasn't needed. But I think the moments where I had to switch, it was uncomfortable. Like I felt like I wasn't my authentic self. Mm-hmm. And so then I started question, what's the purpose? And if I am switching, am I switching for me to benefit me or am I switching to benefit them? Who's more important in, in the matter, Right. So then by the time I got to college, you know, I went to Tulane University in New Orleans. I found myself having to do it more in undergrad. And it wasn't because I wanted to. It's because I was made to feel like I had to. So by the time I got to graduate school, I just took the coats off. I didn't want to wear, I didn't want to wear a fur. I didn't want to wear a leather. I didn't want to wear a pleather. I took them all off. Because guess what? This is, let's just, when you have ownership, like when you finally get to a point in your life and, and, it's, and it's, it goes past just your career, it's just you as a person. When you know, you know what you know, and you know that you have worked so hard that people would, wouldn't know about the tears in your four walls because you didn't think you were going to be able to. Once you like get that, get that that thing, then you don't have to wear a coat. You realize that you have worked and you've gotten the information needed to be the accessory to your greatness. Mm. Grad school, that second year, 
shook that off. Because I knew that what I knew and I knew that what I wanted to do with my art was to bring gatherings, bring people together, right? Not just dance, but remember what ritual was. Go back, bring people back to that, right? Because we, sometimes we, get so, we become so educated and so full of knowledge and we become the scholars that we forget about the gatherings, the bantabah. We forget about the family reunions. We forget about the weddings and all of those things. And so I wanted to, I wanted to bring that back, right? So I took the coats off. Like, it's okay to take them off because when you take them off, the who of who you are and what you do, they want it. They want to be a part of it. They get excited. You should see all of them in the, set, in the streets of New Orleans. Sometimes it's more of them than it's us. So being uncomfortable with having to switch took them off. Yeah, right. I feel, yes, real quick. I feel that on uncomfortable because I, whenever I feel like I have to do any code switching, I think uncomfortable is a great word to use. And I feel like there's, after speaking with so many Black dancers and Black students at all different levels, that is the word that comes up a lot, is uncomfortable. And I think that's a shame that, you know, we have to experience that within our education places where we're given this language. Um, We talked with Devin Bannison a couple of episodes ago about audio matching your video, right? There's this talk about all of these things, but as Black artists, our audio doesn't get to match our video. But yes, Ayun, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, no. You know, I'm just thinking that we don't, I'm thinking about the fact, I guess I imagine myself as bullheaded, right? I have this thing, and I think it's a part of it I was bullied growing up in in Jamaica. Like, in fact, I was, I went to all boys school, and I was obviously gay. I couldn't say I was gay because it would, it would be dangerous for me. But there was a way that we had this gesture in grad school that the threes did that we went through like the whole educational environment with our elbows up, like kind of pushing through, making a way for ourselves, right? So I didn't, I actually didn't learn to code switch until I started teaching full-time in colleges. And you know what I had to learn was because I needed to be able to communicate with my students who were now being introduced into these private liberal arts college environments because they came with financial aid. Yes, they were bright, but they're getting in there because they come with financial aid. And those students were looking at me as one of the only Black people in the space to be able to talk to me a certain way and to vibe with me a certain way. And their parents certainly were expecting that, right? So who I actually felt comfortable presenting as was that I had to learn how to, to, to allow myself to be in the vernacular in a way that created a more welcoming space, that created a, a sense of community. And I would say now, that flipping, flopping becomes even a part of my performance of, of my educational practice. It's how I break the, the, the wall in the classroom. It's how I can introduce certain folks into the conversation. Like when we're talking about composition in my class, I'm talking about Camille Brown. I'm talking about Sidra Bell. I'm talking about Kyle Abraham. I'm talking about Ralph Lemon. Like I'm talking about Black people. And I'm teaching all the lessons that we've been, and, and Bill T. Jones, I'm talking about all the aesthetics that the white professors talk about, but just to a Black lens. And we're not going to have a conversation about the fact that I'm doing that. I'm just teaching those as examples. 
right? Those are my references. So for me, I that's how I've been able to like find spaces with my students, how I navigate being a black professor when the only other black people on campus are the ancillary staff and the security guards. Like how they look at me as representing something and me going back and forth and being able to be welcoming and them being welcoming to me. It's like this reciprocal thing. So for me, that's when it's become important as a survival technique for me and my my students in an academic space. But in my own life as a student, I'm like, I'm paying my money. Like, pardon me, shut the fuck up and educate me. That's that's my approach. (laughs) Period. Okay. (laughs) And on that note, I do want to let us take a quick break. So we're going to take a quick five minute break. I am a advocate of the Union Five. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yes, when we come back, we'll get to know our guests a little bit better through a round of rapid fire questions. So we'll be back with more on the lab on how to do. Choreographers out there, raise your hand if you could use more time, space, and money to create your work. Okay, don't take your hands off the wheel. Uh, they all took their hands off the wheel, Michael. I got, I got <laughs> ladies count two million hands and car crashes. The two million choreographers with cars in New York City. Yeah, right. That's where, <laughs> that's where we've gone wrong in the first place. Now, we all know that the answer is every single choreographer out there could use more time, space, and money to create their work. So enter the CUNY Dance Initiative, or CDI. CDI is a residency program that opens the doors of City University of New York campuses to professional choreographers across New York City's five boroughs. They can offer you free space to create, teach, and perform, as well as financial support. Now, CDI has already helped over 130 local artists right here in New York City launch new work, develop new audiences, and establish new relationships within the performing arts community. And you know what? You could be next. Actually, Michael, we've interviewed a ton of CDI resident choreographers over the years, I think uh, during your tenure and before. And I will say they're just always such innovators in the dance community, and they're a really diverse collection of artists. Yeah, so many incredible choreographers. You and I had the chance to talk with Tiffany Mills last year. Mm -hmm. We'll never, of course, forget Jess's awesome interview with 2019 Bessie Award winner, tap dancer Caleb Teicher. And a while ago, we talked to Efrata Sherry, who's a B-girl and a house dancer. We talked to Annabella Lanzu, uh, Benny Royce Royan. We even got to interview the director of CUNY Dance Initiative, Alyssa Alpine. And you can find all of those interviews and more at potada.com, as well as potada on iTunes. Now, missing this once-a-year application to be a CDI resident is heartbreaking. So do not let it happen to you. Make sure you jump over to the website, cuny.edu slash danceinitiative and join their email list. And check out the homepage for application alerts, insider ticket discounts, and so much more. And if you just love dance, make sure you follow at CDI underscore dance on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Okay, back to the pod. Welcome back to the lab on Potada. We took a little break for some self-care, some Yambalu, and to get a sip of water. <laughs> now it's time for one of our favorite parts of the show, our rapid fire questions. So we all pretty much know how this works have a set of questions we can go around and share them with our audience members. Okay, so first one. If you could take class with anyone or grab coffee or a beverage or whatever with anybody, dead or alive, who would it be and why? So basically picking somebody's artistic brain. You can do it through physical movement or through conversation. Who would you pick and why? I'll start. 
I was actually thinking about this last night. I'd love to have coffee with Jawale Zala, who I already know and have been, uh, you know, in kind of in the sphere of the urban bush women for a long time. And I think the thing that I'm most interested in is actually about like organization building and just kind of the different iterations of what UBW has looked like in terms of its business over, you know, almost four decades of work. Brilliant. I love that. Anybody else? What y'all feeling? Uh, Brenda Dixon Godshield. I would, I would want to sit with her. Mm-hmm. I got to sit with her one time, but it wasn't enough. I just, I just want to know how where she's getting her inspiration from that deep, deep thought and the way she brings it together into this writing that feels like dancing is tremendous to me. So I, I, wanna, mm-hmm. I would want to sit with her. Yes, beautiful. Michelle, what about you? I'm like, this will be a great little coffee session or dinner date, whatever it's going to be. I'm trying to show up, do a plus one. <laughs> so I think I'm going to take Sydney. Sydney, I'm going to ride off of yours because I want to yes. I'm going to come sit with you and Miss Jawale. Yes. I've always admired her tenacity, like how her leadership, you know, leadership skills are very, very important because that can make, break, or look at the longevity of what, you know, how long your company is going to be present. So definitely, Jaoli, and definitely, you know, Ms. Gasha, I mean, when I had to read her first book, you know, in grad school, I didn't know who she was. You know, I was like, oh, that lady, she has a lot of names. That's interesting. Look, I know I'm going to make people laugh, you know. Brenda Dixon, that's child. One, two, three. But after having read her first book, what was it? The Black Dance, what was it? The Black Dancing Body? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. I got mine up there too. Yes. First of all, the way that she wrote the book, as in layman terms, a person that may not actually have a degree can still understand her language, right? And I appreciated that as a reader. So I want to sit with y'all and I'm going to come be the third wheel. But you know, here, Ms. Jigo with the ancestral stuff. I Let's would, go. I would love to sit with Mama Pearl Prima. Mm. 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 Yeah. You know, I... Mm. Did you pass out there? <laughs> <laughs> My phone fell over, yeah. <laughs> like, yes. Because I think, I think, I, I feel like Mama Prima still, she still has not gotten her due props for, for, for her, for her activism, right? When we look at Black dance and we look at pieces that were created purposely that related to social justice and social injustice, that to have the courage to present that type of work. Like, how you do that? Because I'm, I'm, I get nervous. You know, I, I'm like, oh, I don't want to offend. Like, how do you, what, it, what was it about her that allowed her the courage to create the work and then perform the work on their stage in front of them? I just want to, I just, I just want to know. Because then maybe I can hit the mark. Yeah, Mama Pearl. Y'all, like I said, that's an incredible list. We got Jawale Zalar, we have Pearl Premise, and we have Brenda Dixon at Got Shields. So make sure y'all look them up, do your homework if y'all don't know who they are. Uh, uh, Ulysses Dove, too. Let's shout out Ulysses Dove, okay? (laughs) Those two documentaries, just to say, just to say, sorry. Yes. No, shout them out. That's what we got to do because they don't want to shout them out. So sometimes we have to do it. 
All right, next question. Put us on to one of your favorite hometown restaurants. So we were all repping our hometown earlier. Yes, I'm, I love to eat. So, and I love to rep for my city. So I'm from Dallas. So I said Whataburger last week. I'm also adding this week Elaine's Kitchen mm-hmm, and Rudy's Chicken. Okay, so put us on to one of your restaurants in case we have a listener, okay, from wherever you're at. Put us on to one of your favorite hometown restaurants. I know it's hard to pick one. <laughs> I don't know where to call my hometown. I'm not going to send everybody to Jamaica right now. But I'm going to say in New York, Negril. The one on West Third. Yes. Negril is good. I love Negril. Mm-hmm. This is a hard question for me because every time I bring people to Baltimore, I just bring them to my mama's house. Uh, <laughs> so That can be the... Know, <laughs> hit me up. Right. <laughs> Okay, and, I love know, that. You know, we could just go to the Mosley house. There we go. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I feel that. That's, I, I can't. I'm sorry. I can't answer. <laughs> I know, right? People go to New Orleans to eat. Mm-hmm. You, and it, it, could be, it could be Commander's Palace. Mm-hmm. On who you are and, and, and what your preference is. It could be Dookie Chase. You know, Miss Leah Chase, she just passed a couple of years ago, one of the most uh, phenomenal legend female artists, female cooks, you know. And then you can go to the gas station. You can go on Broad Street, Broad and St. Bernard, and uh, it's called Triangle Deli, and it's a gas station, but they have a little, and so, you know, it depends on what you feel like. (laughs) Yes. Well, we love options, okay? And we got some for everybody. (laughs) Thank you for sharing all of those. Okay. In addition to food, I also like music. So you can give us the last song you listen to or your favorite song you're listening to right now, whichever comes first. Put us on to some tunes and some music. Uh, You're killing me right now because I'm going to review about my life. But I'm I'm listening to a lot of SZA. I'm listening to that that, that first album still... That long, the last song, I want to say it's November or, it's, or December. It's one, it's a month. And, um, and she's just talking about like, she can't believe at her age, she hasn't accomplished certain things in her personal life. And I feel like that is the sacrifice of being a successful Black artist is that you have to give up so much. <laughs> Maybe you don't have to. Maybe you don't have to. Maybe that's the path I chose. But something about her music, her voice, even her struggle with her vocal surgery recently and coming back from that, there's something about her soulfulness and her pain and her like nowness that is that speaks very profoundly to me. Mm-hmm. She has such a unique voice too. Um, control is still definitely in heavy rotation over here. So yes. Okay, anybody else? What are we listening to? I'm still riding the waves of this uh, Gladys Knight Pay LaBelle versus that just happened. Let's ride it. <laughs> and I just have to say, Love Overboard is definitely on Ooh. repeat. Yeah, just S-O-S-O-S-O-S. That's all I have to say. <laughs> yes. Thank you for bringing us back to that because that was, that was incredible. That was legendary. That was mm, beautiful. Yes. Okay. Michelle, what you got for us? And what's, what's so interesting is we don't know if we'll ever see that again. As much as, as much as this virtual transfer of a lifestyle is difficult for a lot of us and things are happening, 
that wouldn't normally happen. And let's not forget, Miss Dion showed up. Mm-hmm. Listen, Miss Warwick doesn't show up for everything, honey. So when are you going to see those three on stage together? So there's some, there's some iconic things that are happening. Like you, did y'all see Patty? Did y'all see her dancing? Come on, them, them right, all right, slapping. yes. <laughs> She hurt her knee. I said, uh, Mama Patty, I'm gonna need you to look, okay? <laughs> you know, and whatever, and look, whatever she had in her little cup, it got her through it. Her knee. Listen. <laughs> and when are they gonna get her uh teleprompter? Right. <laughs> get the words. Right. Okay. She was like, even ABC, she was like, where's the teleprompter? I said, come on, Auntie Patty. Oh, <laughs> uh, that was great, y'all. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so. That's a great, you got a lot to listen to right there. Okay, everybody. Okay, let's see. Next one. When you think of the word successful, who comes to mind and why? Okay, I'm going to say Camille A. Brown. I've known Camille for a long time and in many ways watched her evolution. And I think of her as a friend and we are able to sit down every once in a while and talk. And she was not deterred. Not by any, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to talk about her personal situation. She can talk about that. But at every point that an obstacle was put in her way or the thing that she felt she should be doing wasn't the thing she did, she just kept putting, putting. And she has stood by her idea of what dance is and what dance can be and what dance can say in such a profound way. And when you see it manifest in the way that it is and the Thing that she will not take from people who are powerful, that she insists on them acknowledging who she is and how and, and, and what she represents and treating her equally to the people who are, are her peers is radical. It is a feminist performance of self. It is Blackness empowerment. I mean, it, she moves me deeply. That's success. She is successful. Yes. Beautiful. Yeah. Shout out Camille A. Brown. Anyone else have anyone to share? I'll name one of my big sisters, Ebony Noel Golden, who kind of straddles the theater and dance world and who I've worked with closely in a lot of different ways. To me, just in terms of a Black woman who has visualized and manifested a life is, you know, just living how they want to be living, living a thriving life, being able to take a cab wherever they want to go or, you know, make their art and really be in deep, rigorous study of all the things, whether that is working in community, working around issues of social justice, making theater that happens on the street or happens in a theater. I just, you know, I think for me, the definition of success is are you doing what you want to be doing and doing it at the level that you want to be doing it? And that doesn't necessarily mean that you have fame or that you, you know, that everybody knows your name, you know, all those types of things. But it does mean that you in every day of your life, wake up and you're grateful and you're doing it. Beautiful. And I want to shout out that name again, Ebony Noel Golden. Yes. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Yes. Incredible. What about you, Michelle? I'm going to bring it to present time. Right. Chadwick, our Black Panther. When you look at success, first of all, people define success differently. You know, success is different for all of us. 
But I think for a person, and I, 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 I've been thinking about it ever since he, he passed, for a person to, in the midst of a terminal illness, still continue and manage to work inside of his greatness up until his last breath, now that's successful, honey. In between sets, no one knew oh, coming back, going back onto the set. Like, up until your last breath, like, if that's not resilience, I don't know what to say. If that's not success, right? It depends on how you define it. But for me, for a person to have that much strength, right? Like, that much. That's success. That's a successful life to me. And to be able to leave here and the remembrance that people have of you probably was maybe 10 days ago when you were working. Like, I have a lot of friends that are successful, right? All of my girls. I don't roll with women that's not successful, right? You have to start, you have to make sure you push yourself around people that you want to you wanna take on that energy. So his, his story, the how, is, is success to me. And I admire it. Beautiful, beautiful. And rest in peace to Chadwick Boseman, for sure. Thank you, guys. And then last question for my rapid fire question. For all of our listeners who might be considering graduate programs in higher education, if you could give them one piece of advice, so that listener that might look like you or come from where you came from, if you could give them one piece of advice, what would it be? Moving into a space of higher ed, when you're looking at higher ed, going into master's or, you know, PhDs, I think just having a real clear idea of what you want to do, you know, kind of at the end of that road. Like, why are you pursuing this? And keep that central as you as you pursue the work. Thank you, Sydney. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm so I'm at a crossroads. I'm going to identify that before I say what I'm saying. I think that dancers pigeonhole themselves. We have gone down in the rabbit hole. We keep going into the rabbit hole deeper and deeper. And a part of the issue in our field is that we are too insular, right? Mm -hmm. Like more of us need to go outside of our fields, go study performance studies, go study critical race theory, go study, like how much can you expand, right? So yeah, you get a terminal degree. If you want to teach in a university, yeah. But you can get to the level, to the deep research in your creative work and your writing without getting an MFA. So yes, there's a career piece to it, but do some research and really figure out, like, why am I going to go? And what do I want to have at the end of the day? And if it is about knowledge or depth, or breath, whatever it is. But, you know, for me, having a BFA and an MFA, I couldn't go on to do a, a PhD in dance. It just, it, it just felt like I already had the job that people are getting PhDs to do, right? Working in a university. And I was saying, well, what can I do to expand how I think about the world? And the kind of discussions we're having about ethics, uh, the kind of conversations we're having about curriculum and restructuring curriculum and imagining curriculum. These are the kinds of conversations that I'm looking forward to bringing back into a dance department where we can actually talk about like, what is the field? What does the world look like now? And how do we stop telling our students to go learn to dance more and pay $10,000 for a weekend of performances in a theater and only make $2,000? Like if that is the model of spending $50,000 to go to grad school, then we just have to throw it out. 
right? So we, I feel like we really need to spend some time, really investigate what is it that you want to come away with in a very broad sense and finding an institution that will allow you to broaden because all of that's going to come back to your dance, to your dance life, to your dance study. But you're going to come back with something new and rich from another discipline, you know? And I, and I think that, yeah, that would be my advice. Beautiful. Thank you, Ayun. Michelle, do you have anything for us? First of all, know how much you are paying per credit. Highlands University. Because it's not a joke. Now, as much as I gain so much, I'm still paying for it. So let's just be real. Like, you know, know what you're paying, right? And if you're willing to pay that much per credit, make sure that the program you have researched the program and know that it has space to facilitate you in its plan. Because if not, it's going to be a fight. It's going to be a tug of war, right? Research is important. I think research is important. Research is important. Know the program. Know the professors. Listen, listen, listen. I'm sorry. I could not have been in the program where all of the faculty was white that would not have worked for where I needed to be inside of their plan. It wouldn't have worked. So if Jeffrey wasn't there, if Tommy wasn't there, if CJ, if Mr. CJ wasn't there, like I would not have had that support, right? So do your research, know how much you pay per credit and know the people that are going to be like guiding you on this journey, right? And stop going to schools for the name. I have to tell my high schoolers all the time, this is a thing in high school, so, you know, you got, you know, are you and you're teaching college level. Sydney, how old are you? What's your, what your range is? What? High school, college? All of the above. All of the above. Okay. Mm-hmm. The high school babies, they're mm-hmm. schools based on the name. Mm-hmm. You really are. Yeah. You are. And they are not doing their research about, like, is that where you, is that, do you fit in? Right. You fit the scope of work. Because mm-hmm. it's about their scope. You have to fit their scope of work. And they have to, as a, as a board, tell you, the committee tells you if your thesis idea is good enough. So you got you to gotta know, know who they are. Mm-hmm. Right? Michelle, and know if you, you know. Michelle, I'm straight up telling young people, I, it's so different from where I was 15 years ago. I'm like not a proponent of a conservatory education anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy because I'm from that, right? But this idea of being able to double major is mm-hmm. like s- such a great possibility. And my students who come out of those spaces, many of them are incredible dancers, but they also know how to write. Like mm-hmm. what a radical concept. Mm-hmm. Because the world we live in, you need to be able to present the thing that you're talking about. How many average artists we know who write really well, get great grants, and get to show their work? And then we see lots of brilliant artists who don't have that ability to frame their work, and it's not out there in that way. Yeah, yeah. Right. Sorry. And, and in the high school, you know, the, teaching high school, I am supposed to be preparing them for you, right? So then there's also a responsibility from the teacher. It's, we also got to look at the people who are teaching, right? 
you have people who think because they can put a little step together and create this fabulous phrase, right? That that defines them as a teacher. No, honey, you have to have a practice where there's an opening prayer, right? There is, you know, uh, we pass the the plate and then there's a benediction. So I have to do, I have to process the high schoolers like that. I have to make writing a part an everyday experience for them because they will not pick up the pen and pencil so in their bodies like I have to make them do that there are teachers that are not doing that so by the time they get to you I you you got three times the work to do and is that fair so we got to work together more mm-hmm. you know I'm sorry I don't know where this conversation is going on but in the right direction in the right direction thank you So I just wanted to say thank you to all of you for taking the time out of your day to come and share and have such an open and honest discussion with me and the podcast listeners. You gave us so many incredible things to think about. Thank you for being so open with your personal experiences. This is definitely, I think, the beginning of a lot of important conversations. Before we head out, I'd like to close by sharing where our listeners can find out more about you and what you're working on and continue to support you and your work. So please share anything that you'd like. Uh, We can start with Sydney. Okay, so you can find me on the interwebs at slmdances.com and all the social medias at slmdances. Real quick, I just want to plug that we are currently about to launch an online course called Professional Development for the People. And this is an opportunity to develop your leadership skills and your internal organizational culture. And, And you can think about that in any ways. If you're an artist, if you're an educator, cultural worker, organizer, et cetera, but doing that through a lens of embodiment and doing that through a lens of kind of a people a people first way of working. So I just wanted to shout that out, professional development for the people, slmdances.com. Thank you. Thank you, Sydney. And y'all, Sydney is the bomb. I've heard Sydney talk for what, maybe 15 minutes on the Dance Union podcast. And from there, I've just been continuing to follow her and her work. So please check it out. She has a lot of great information to share. Ayun, what about you? I know you have some exciting projects. So tell us how we can support you on this next step in your journey. So I'm working on the social media thing. So I have, we're at baleashani.org. And then we're at baleashani on Instagram and Facebook. And if you want to find me, I am at Ayun, I-Y-U-N, A-S-H-A-N-I on Instagram and Facebook. I, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do plug it. I'm, I have an online fundraiser because the way the year played out, I was like, I'm going to go to school if I'm going to be sitting at home for a year. Like, you know, and so I got into a grad program at the last moment and then was like, oh, geez, I have to pay for this. So I'm on GoFundMe and it is for Ayun's doctoral program. And yeah, you can find me there. Yes, and you can just check out Ayun's Instagram and he'll have all the stuff there. I've seen it. It'll direct you right to that crowdsource funding so we can help support him in this next step of his journey. Absolutely. And Michelle, last but not least. Let me just say, Sydney and Ayun, it has been a pleasure. I'm always excited. My, my spirit is always full when I'm sitting around uh, great Blackness. You know, uh, blackness that is uh, uh, manifesting and matriculating and all the M's that is moving 
in doing the thing. So let me continue to encourage both of you to stay steadfast, right? Because you you right where you're supposed to be. And you're going to get that doctoral degree, but I'm going to send you $5, okay? I'm going to send you $5 now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so I'm at Booker T. Washington High School. I'm on the dance faculty there. Amazing program. You can find me on Instagram under the original Buckshop, which is my anesthetic uh, lecture and movement workshop. And Instagram, it's M Gibson for life. On Facebook, it is the original Buckshop. And it's Michelle N. Gibson, the artist. Website, michellengibson.com. I'm just trying to do the work. I'm, I'm Listen. The community, we need each other in, in a way far beyond what we thought, right? And so with the work that I'm trying to do, I'm just trying to bring us back home. I just, I just don't want us to forget mm-hmm. our BFAs and our MFAs and our PhDs. I just don't want us to forget, right? So thank you so much, uh, guys. You guys are amazing. Much love. Yes. Thank you all so much. My cup is more than full. It runneth over, as we used to say when I was growing up. So I, I want to thank you all so much for everything you've shared today. As always, feel free to follow us everywhere at Potada. You can follow me personally at Antoine Byers on Instagram. And if you identify as a Black dancer and want to learn more about a social platform built to unite and uplift Black dancers in our field through leadership, service, education, and community building, check us out at BlackDanceChangemakers.com. All right, that's it for now. Thank you guys for checking in and we'll be back with more next time on The Lab on Potada. Bye y'all.